0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tau Foundation.
1: Hi, I'm here to sign up for the Gifted and Talented program. This program's for children. What are you, 30? What am I, 30? Let me get my driver's license out. You subtract the year you were born from the street where you grew up, right? No, the, the point is you're too old for this program. It's for prodigies. Well, I was a prodigy, but they didn't have programs for people like me, so I was stuck in the regular class with some real meatheads, you know? Total monkey brains. They'd walk around like, Mercury is a metal, derp derp derp. Uh, Mercury is a metal. That's ridiculous. How could a whole planet be metal? It would sink to the bottom of the space ocean. Yeah, I'm afraid we're not currently accepting new applications. So that means I'm in? No, it means the opposite of that. See, it's hard out there for a prodigy. That's the subject of today's show. And now he was the youngest student ever to eat paste, Colin McEnroe.
2: I'm pretty sure that was true, actually. Uh, there may be somebody who has eclipsed my record. By now, but yes, we're going to talk about prodigies today. We're going to talk about, um, well, we're going to talk about uh, children who are called gifted. We're going to talk about prodigies. Um, there are a lot of words that are kind of used interchangeably here, and one goal we may have today is to figure out whether those words are interchangeable. We're also going to talk about sort of the downside of being a prodigy. A lot of times it doesn't mean that you won the brain lottery, uh, and many prodigies come to rather tragic ends or live very complicated and difficult and obstacle-filled lives. So we'll tell you all about that as we go along here. Uh, Let me begin by introducing our first two guests. Ellen Winner is the professor and chair of psychology at Boston College, where she directs the Arts and Mind Lab. She's the author of over 100 articles, four books, including Gifted Children, Myths, and Realities. Also with us uh, on the phone, Jennifer Drake an assistant professor of psychology at Brooklyn College, currently researching the cognitive and perceptual processes of artistically gifted children and the link between autism and artistically gifted uh, children. So, um, first of all, welcome to uh, the show, both of you. Thank you. Uh, and, Thank uh, you for having me. All right. I'm going to begin just by asking you— um, Are we always talking—when we talk about prodigies, let's just take that word for a second. When we talk about prodigies, uh, Ellen Winner, are we always talking about the same animal? I mean, almost everybody who was ever good at chess— was a prodigy. Kasparov, Fischer, Capablanca, Magnus Carlsen. So there's something about that field, and maybe math, and maybe music, in which prodigies seem to incubate really easily Mozart composed and performed at the age of five. Uh, Ramanujan, with very little education, began a series of massive contributions to math uh, starting around 12. Thomas Chatterton wrote significant poetry at 12. Shirley Temple exhibited a preternaturally adult relationship with her own talent as a very little girl. Picasso so painted at eight. There's a whole bunch of not so famous people who could do rapid mental calculations starting at four or five. So are these people all the same phenomenon? And are they also the same as so-called gifted children, the, just the children who don't thrive in a normal classroom but do seem especially smart in, in other ways? Uh, is this all one big vast continuum or are these very different kinds of phenomena?
3: Well, I think there. I would like to make two points here. First of all, the difference between a gifted child and a prodigy is simply a matter of continuum we have a continuum from normal to gifted to very very gifted to very 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 gifted and we tend to call people at the high-end prodigies a prodigy has got to be somebody that is showing extremely high ability as a child some people say the child has to be showing adult-like abilities and that makes a lot of sense to me um, but we also have to make a distinction between domains So Um, A prodigy in music performance is very likely different in some ways from a prodigy in math, for example. So they have different brains, different abilities. Um, They may have similar kinds of drive, but I don't think we should lump prodigies in different domains together as all the same phenomenon.
2: Um, How does that sound to you, Jennifer Drake?
3: I think that's exactly correct.
4: It's, It's a matter of degree. Um, With the prodigies being extremely, extremely talented and um, almost at adult levels, like Ellen mentioned, and with gifted children, you know, they are gifted and they are showing extreme talent, but not at maybe necessarily an adult level. Um, and they shouldn't be lumped together. And,
2: and, I agree. And Jennifer Drake, while, while you're talking about this, I mean, obviously, when we think about prodigies, we often think about the baggage that goes with it and the downside that goes with it. So we think about Bobby Fischer, a prodigy who became more and more eccentric, uh, lived a life almost incapacitated by his vast eccentricities. You could say the same same thing about Glenn Gold, you know, fabulous uh, pianist uh, at a very young age, but a person whose eccentric- eccentricities seem to almost overwhelm his life. I mentioned Thomas Chatterton. His literary accomplishments were vast, but stretched from the age of 12 to three months shy of his 18th birthday, at which point he took his own life uh, with arsenic. Um, You know, one could go on and on. And there's this sense that, that there's this huge price of being a prodigy. Is that always the case, though?
4: No, it isn't. It isn't always the case. Of course, those you know, are the ones we maybe hear in the media, and so they come to mind, um, but that's not always the case. And Ellen and I have come across prodigies um, who are extremely talented and who, who that doesn't happen
3: um, to, and, ha- and have supportive families. Right, so um, let's take the case of Picasso or Yo-Yo Ma, both of whom were prodigies mm-hmm. as children, and both of them went on to become great creators. Um, and did not show, I mean, Picasso may have had his personal problems in the way he treated his family, but mm-hmm. uh, certainly has never been accused of having succumbed to depression or uh, uh, anti-self-destructive uh, behavior.
2: And, you know, um, uh, Ellen, uh, Jane mentioned supportive families. Is that part of it? I mean, y- you think about some of these prodigies, and, and it's, uh, many of them are uh, obsessive. Uh, about what they do, the thing that they care about they care about a lot, right. uh, sometimes to the exclusion of much else yeah. so so you know success versus failure uh, ability to kind of get through life without contracting tuberculosis and failing to notice it um is, is that often um a factor of sort of who's around them and who can care about these these daily concerns
3: well i uh- I think that um, a term I like to use is a rage to master. Prodigies show a rage to master in the domain in which they have talent. They like it a lot. All they want to do is is develop their ability in that domain because they get great pleasure out of it. They get flow out of it because learning comes so easily. And they can become very, very single-minded and obsessive. the problem is when parents start living through their children and trying to put their children on the stage and make them famous for the skills that they have and make the child feel that, that performance is everything and that that's the way to achieve parental love. Those are the kinds of prodigies who I think are at risk for um, emotional disturbance and John Stuart Mill, um, John Ruskin. Um, Boris Sittis, who I think we're going to talk about later, um, Norbert Wiener, they all had parents that pushed them mercilessly. Um, on the other hand, you don't want to try to force your child to be normal because your child is not going to be normal. So there's a fine line between not pushing too hard and, um, but also uh, allowing allowing this rage to master to, to flourish.
2: Jennifer Drake, what do we know about... Um, how the children themselves, who are prodigies, regard this. I mean, as um, Ellen said, there is this rage to master, you know, that they they take a a tremendous amount of sustenance from the mastery and the the obsessive connection they have with whatever their subject matter is. But do they also regard this as a little bit of a curse? Do they wish they were like everybody else? Uh, Obviously, one size doesn't fit every prodigy, but is there a pattern?
4: I would say for the young children, they, they, don't, they don't realize, they don't know anything any different, um, and they, you know, they, wake, they wake up and they immediately want to be involved in, in their gift, and they want to be doing that all day. They don't want to go to school. They don't want to play with their friends. Um, they just want to be involved in that. Um, I think as they get older, they may realize, you know, I'm not like you know, other kids. I'm not like other children.
3: Um, yeah, and if I can jump I think in. I mean that Sorry. time
4: they want to seek you know, they might want to see um, seek normal, like have a normal friendship or a normal in their lives. Um but as a young child they don't realize they as as Ellen mentioned, they have this
3: rage to master and that's all they want to do is be involved in that in that gift.
2: Ellen Winter, what were you gonna say?
3: I, I was just gonna jump in and say that I I'd like to expand on that. I, I agree with what um, Jen said. I think it's when kids start going to school, um, they realize they're different. It's not that they necessarily wanna be like normal typical kids but they feel isolated because there's so few kids like themselves and that can lead to unhappiness.
2: All right, well let's let's take the uh case of uh, at least one famous prodigy who um had uh, maybe a, a rockier road uh, than some of the others that we'll talk about today. Uh, William James Sidis. And so Ellen you, uh, you mentioned him a little while ago. Uh tell us this story. Yes, and
3: I believe I said Boris that and was, that, and that was that, his right? father. <laughs> so um Sidis was a clearly a prodigy in math, and his father, Boris Sittis, was what I call a creator father. He decided he was going to create the gift in this child, and he was going to do everything in his power to develop the gift in this child, and so the child uh, Sittis was really um, forced to to work all the time and suffered a lot of emotional deprivation, and uh, he was an extreme prodigy in math, but um, when he when he grew up he lost all interest in math and didn't want to have anything to do with it and started doing some very low level things that sound rather autistic like like um uh, focusing on on bus tokens and bus schedules um and then died early of a brain tumor which is probably unrelated but um a brain hemorrhage i think he's just an example of of um a parent that exploits the child and uh, makes the child miserable.
2: On the other hand, it's difficult to unthread that influence of the, the pushing parent uh, who's exploiting the child um, from the child's natural obsessiveness. I mean, we don't really know, yeah. left to his own devices, what would William Situs have been like. He, chances are he wouldn't have been that different, right? He, I mean, at least he would have been... Um, obsessed with the things that obsessed him to the exclusion of much else. He does seem to fit that profile, right?
3: Yes, and I think there is a fine line between um, a parent pushing and a child pushing him, him or herself. And these children do push themselves. We don't really know what Titus would have been like if if his father had left him alone. What we read about is that the father drove him mercilessly and didn't let him do anything except for academics. So no sports, for instance, no hanging out in nature. Those were considered unimportant. Um, So this is so extreme that it's unlikely that he would have been just like this if his father hadn't been pushing him like this.
2: All right. Uh, by the way, if people have questions about this, we're live here in the afternoon. You may call in 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266, and you may tweet us, although I don't know if we're in a position to tweet back at you uh, without Greg Hill today, but at WNPR Colin. Um, so um, Jennifer Drake, um, Ellen used the word autistic uh, to talk about William Citizens or uh, traits that seem like they might be autistic. You know, we think of autism, obviously, in a very different way today than, than maybe we did even 10, 15, 20 years ago. We think of it as a spectrum uh, and a spectrum on which all kinds of behaviors may or may not exhibit themselves. So um, as we look at that spectrum and then we look at the continuum uh, that you and Ellen talked about um, uh, of giftedness, uh, which uh, culminating in the prodigy on the high end. Um, What's the I mean, obviously, this is an incredibly complicated double helixy kind of relationship, but but what is the relationship? Is, is there a way to characterize it at all between those two spectrums?
4: Uh, well what we what we do find is that these prodigies and, and gifted children uh, do exhibit some they don't necessarily are not diagnosed with autism, but they do exhibit autistic-like traits. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means is they have some behaviors that are similar. So they would may notice unusual details or have a very good memory for unusual details. Um, the obsessiveness that Ellen talked about, that rage to master, so doing things over and over again and not really noticing um, what's going on. And so we do see in, in gifted children and in prodigies, we do see they, they do exhibit more of these kind of traits um, than non-prodigies.
3: But they don't exhibit the
4: social deficits that no, not at all autistic kids have.
2: Well, they don't always any anyway. kind of
4: behaviors that they're yeah. exhibiting.
2: I mean, so. uh, obviously, uh, it seems to me anyway that it almost is a double helix in the sense that those two lines probably cross at certain points and don't cross at others. So you look at someone like Glenn Gould, who I, I would assume, you know, if we could sort of revisit his whole life and 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 subject him to tests, not right now, or or Bobby Fisher for that matter, uh, you know, I would imagine that a lot of people would ultimately decide to put them um, somewhere on the autism mm-hmm. spectrum. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but but you know, we we could name a whole bunch of others too the 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 high number of prodigies who um at minimum never form you know permanent attachments or seem to have real difficulty as kind of ascending Mm -hmm. uh, assembling families you know that some with this a lot of them probably belong somewhere on that spectrum Right. right
3: i would agree with that and they're so focused on their own mind that they don't they're not that interested in other people there are a lot of people like that who are um they they you they might look somewhat autistic because they are they are not interested in normal social interaction
2: so, you know, in a way, we're talking, in each case, we're talking about a real complex set of relationships that involve nature and nurture. And I wonder if this is sort of a black box that we can't pry all the way open. In other words, we we know that some people are simply, uh, just back to sort of giftedness and prodigies, we know that certain people are just born with gifts, um, that they begin to exhibit talents at a very early age that aren't inculcated in them in any way. But then there's the, the relationship with the people around them who either decide that these gifts are important, perhaps to the exclusion of all else, uh, or decide to, to try to raise this person, help this person be as healthy as possible. And and in the same way, you know, we we look, I think, at at the autism spectrum, and obviously some of it is nature, and some of that is nurture too. It's sort of a lot of it is kind of how it's handled. And I would imagine for both of you. I don't know exactly what question I'm asking right now, but I would imagine for both of you, that makes this black box very hard to get all the way open to talk about sort of what leads to good outcomes for a fabulously, prodigiously talented child who maybe also exhibits a certain range of eccentricities.
3: It's extremely difficult to predict what kind of outcome any child is going to have because there are so many factors. Um, But let me just say a uh, a, a few things. One is... There is, I don't, there, there are no children who achieve at a high level without some kind of support, whether it's from a family or a close family member, friend. So talent alone is not going to do it. You need to have some kind of supportive environment and the gift that you have has to be recognized as valuable in the culture. Um, but I also wanted to say something about the 10,000 hours of practice is all you need to make you great. <laughs> um, You've probably come across this because it's been popularized um, by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, for one. Um, about 20 years ago, Anders Erickson, a uh, psychologist, published an article uh, that said that sh- the claim to show that practice is everything and that there's no such thing as talent.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and a lot of people were bothered by that because they said, look at the very early things you see children doing. They clearly have not had a lot of practice. They haven't had a lot of training. Um, But uh, just this week, an article came out in Psychological Science, um, which is a premier journal in our field, uh, in which a meta-analysis is done combining many, many studies looking at the correlation between practice and high achievement. And it was very striking what they found, which is just the opposite of what Erickson showed. The, the correlation between how many hours a day you practice something and how high a level you achieve is actually much lower than people would have thought, and it depends on the domain. In some domains, such as music performance, it'll be higher than in other domains. Um, so, but it, the correlation was basically never higher than about 26%, and that was for games video games in in, in music it was 21% that means there's room for 79% in music of raw Mm -hmm. talent so uh, that's one way of getting at the nature and nurture is to look at how much of a link there is between how hard you work and how high you work we know how high a level you achieve
2: um, as long as we're quoting numbers, and I don't know whether this number exists, but Ellen, I'm just going to ask you. I mean, is there a number that talks about the percentage of children who can be described as gifted? And that may be a very hard thing to arrive at just with a lack of a, maybe a full clinical agreement uh, about what that word means. But who can be described as gifted but who exhibit no accompanying pathology, who are, you know, who don't really fall into any autism spectrum categories or, or, or anything else like that? Is does anybody, has anybody looked at that? Is there such a number?
3: Unfortunately, there isn't. And I, that's because the percentage is going to differ by domain,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and it's going to differ by your criterion for what you count as gifted. Right? How gifted do you have to be? Um, we only know, we, 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 we know how many kids have certain kinds of IQ, um, certain levels of IQ, because IQ scores are standardized. So we can talk about that. But if you want to talk about math gifted, reading gifted, drawing gifted, music gifted, there is no such number.
2: Um, Jennifer Drake... Uh, I just want to add, too, uh, that yeah, um,
3: there is
4: a study in the U.K. that was done a couple of years ago that showed about 8% of by parents, parents reporting whether their child was gifted. Um, and and they reported about 8% of their sample of almost 8,000 um, 8-year-olds, about 8%. But that is parent reports. It's not, you know, not by experts that are assessing this. And I can't say anything about whether or not it, whether they looked at pathology. I just know in general, was about 8% reported having, you know, having some talent in the visual arts, music, or math.
2: You know, Jennifer Drake, we got an email uh, that I think is, is pertinent here, which is on the opposite end, there's this kind of mythologizing that's gone on of the autism spectrum that it's, it's like a, a cracker, ba- cracker Jack box that you automatically get a special prize uh, inside it. And so parents uh, of uh, children who are on the autism spectrum will sometimes be asked by strangers or others, you know, well, what's his gift? What's her gift? Because obviously you get a gift. Uh, and it, this obviously, you know, from Rain Man on, there's this kind of notion. Um, obviously that's not true is, is there something more that that you can say besides that's not true
4: well I mean Rain Man and the example of Rain Man these are you know, autistic savants so they're like prodigies in that they're showing um, extreme talent in um, one domain um, but it is accompanied by some type of um, disorder whether that be um, some type of disability or autism um, they show in the visual arts in, in music and then calendar counting and also similar to Rain Man where he's counting. We don't know the percentage of children who um, who are, are there, how many autistic savants there are. Um, there are not many. It, it is quite low um, percentage. Um, so it's not every child who has this you know, has, has, will be a, um, a savant.
2: Um, on the other hand, there's once again we're, we're back to that huge gray area of people who exhibit gifts that that, that don't fall into that particular domain, uh, but and, but who also may be somewhere on the autism spectrum. Uh, I assume that car- the correlation between those two things. I mean, was Glenn Gould a fabulous pianist because he also fell somewhere on the on the autism spectrum? N- nobody quite understands. I would assume that that vast gray area correlation or lack thereof, right?
3: Right. And no, we we
4: couldn't, we couldn't say anything about that. Whether it was you know be him being autistic, whether having these autistic like traits predicted, or be having this gift and having this rage to master, whether or not that um, contributed, we can't really say. You know what caused
3: um, either one. We're also playing fast and loose with the idea of aut- autism because you know we don't know that, we don't really know that he was autistic. We right. just know that he was single-minded and focused on his work and not interested so much in normal social relations.
2: Um, We're going to take a quick break here. Thanks so much to Jennifer Drake, uh, assistant professor of psychology at Brooklyn College, researching the cognitive and perceptual processes of artistically gifted children. Uh, Ellen Winner is going to stay with us uh, and we're going to come back. We're going to meet the family of three gifted children. Talking about the notion of the uh, prodigy, uh, the frequent drama of the gifted child, to coin a title, Uh, and our number if you want to call in is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266 You may tweet us at Colin. As I say I'm not quite sure that we will tweet back Uh, With us for the show is uh, Ellen Winner She's the professor and chair of psychology at Boston College where she directs the Arts and Mind Lab She's the author of over 100 articles and four books including Gifted Children Myths and Realities Uh, Joining us now uh, are Amanda Mancino and Nigel Roth They are the parents of three children uh, who fall into that gifted uh, rubric Uh, and uh, Amanda Mancino you know co uh, authored the essay. Excuse me, how does an island feel raising gifted children in a world that turns its back so amanda mancino i 'll start with you, and we should say that um, uh, Ellen Winters had some contact uh, professional contact with uh, uh, the the family of Amanda Mancino and Nigel roth amanda mancino i 'm going to uh, begin by asking you. The following question: um, If you had approached my mother at any point during my early life and asked her, uh, "Is uh, little Colin gifted?" Uh, my mother would have said, "Absolutely, yes, of course he's gifted." Uh, many many parents think their children <laughs> are gifted. Um, how do you know your children are gifted?
5: Wow. Um, well, I suspect. I think. I think in our case, um, you know, we were. Um, with, with our first child, um, we we weren't kind of, we didn't have anything to play off of. And so we went for a while thinking that his behavior was the norm. Um, but then when we kind of started meeting other parents, it was like, okay, well, you know, our three-year-old doesn't read. And, um, and uh, our three-year-old uh, isn't kind of drawing these fantastic, you know, drawings of nature and um, and I think for us it was um you know, Rocco, our first child, was was a very early speaker and um and conversationalist. Um and I think I think that when I walked into his room um when he was three and caught him reading, you know, a Doctor Seuss book on his own, um, I had that moment where I took a step back and thought, Okay, well, this is this is going to be interesting, you know, and and it's just, just little things like that, I, I, I think that we um just tiny things of remembering strange words, um, ha- you know, the memory thing was, was a very kind of early occurrence, um, you know, constantly kind of regurgitating information that he heard us say um, from the time he was probably about nine months old or so. So I would I would say, I mean, it, it's just really the little things, the kind of nuances of behavior that don't, you know, you just realize that it's not quite right. Um, so yes, I think that's what I would that I would say in in our experience.
2: And this is Rocco. Uh, and so Nigel Roth uh, she just used the phrase uh, it 's not quite right so and this is a common refrain among the parents of gifted children that my child is gifted, and that 's a problem um, whereas for uh, people who who don 't have gifted children, they might be thinking, "Wow, really because I wish my child was really gifted um, so so explain that assuming that that you that you do feel that way that my child is gifted, and there 's a certain problem that goes along with that what 's the problem
6: well I, th- I think the- problem uh, and I think when Amanda says you know things weren 't just right I think probably what what we 're really saying is things weren 't what we were expecting or what we 'd seen in the past or what we 'd experienced with other parents and I think the with a gifted child, a child who shows the ability to do things ahead of others or do things in a much more sophisticated way, um, that creates a kind of a new framework for existence for that child, so no longer could we sit there and, you know, go through the alphabet with him at three years old. He wanted to be in a museum. Um, And so that would mean we had to be in a museum, or uh, we would have to kind of uh, help him read books that were a little bit more, you know, a little older for him, or or look at math problems and and things that were for children that are older than that. And I don't think it was a a problem as much as as, as a challenge, which you have to rise to, um, if, if your responsibility is to raise these children as best you can. So I'm not sure it was a I'm not sure it's that it's not right. Um, I, I think, you know, off, obviously being gifted is, is a fantastic benefit, but it, it comes with, you know, it comes with other things. It's not just that you get a gifted kid and, you know, they, they start doing fantastic at the age of 11, they go to college, and when they're 15, they're earning great money and bringing it home to me. That, it didn't work quite like that, you know, but it does give you, um, it gives you, I think, something to work with, um, which is, you know, really exciting, really uh, special, really interesting.
2: Um, Amanda Mancino, you've made some decisions about how to educate uh, these children, or at least the ones who are old enough to to contemplate uh, going to school. What are the decisions that you've made?
5: Um, Well, we currently um, homeschool all three children. We have a a 9-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 3-year-old, kind of all exhibiting different types of giftedness. Um, And I think our decision was made specifically specifically when Rocco was very young, probably about two or three, we thought, um, you know, there's a point where they're um, reading such advanced material. I mean, he was curling up at four years old with Roald Dahl books, and, um, you know, the idea of putting him into a kindergarten class and kind of rehashing the alphabet or basic maths. um it felt soul crushing to me. Um, and I knew that it would be to him. And, and I think a lot of, um, schools that are specially designed for the gifted tend to be cost prohibitive for a lot of parents. So, um, we just decided that homeschooling, um, you know, we read up about it and, um, and I mean, Rocco is a a very self-led learner anyway. So we thought, well, this, this will be something that could work for us. It gives us the freedom to move around. We travel a lot. Um, you know, a lot of our learning. Um, it, you know, homeschooling. The term is extremely. Um, I don't know. It, it's not quite right. I mean, we spend a lot of more time out of the home than we do in it. So, um, so that's what we do. We spend time. In, we have our lessons in museums and in parks. Um, we can uh, kind of hit upon the material that really interests them and and, uh, excites them specifically. And and they all, all three of them learn very differently. So it allows us to kind of meet their needs um, in any way that we can that will help them to be successful and happy human
4: beings.
2: So, Nigel Roth, one of the fears that any parent, or that many parents would have in a situation like this is, I mean, you, you in your previous comments outlined you know, a, a very rosy scenario that obviously these kids uh, conquer whatever world they're in and are fabulous successes and, uh, and start sending money home at a certain age uh, uh-huh. and you can put your feet up. Um, yeah. I mean, the other scenario is that these kids don't become quote unquote normal, that they become uh, the kind of uh, kids who are... Attached to rather small coteries of like-minded kids, they don't learn the uh, words. uh, uh, They don't. uh, They don't learn the rules of baseball. Um, They don't uh, know the new Katy Perry song. You know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's got to be a worry, obviously. So, so how do you correct for that? Assuming that that is a worry, assuming that you have some parallel goal of whatever passes for normalcy in 2014, how do you get there?
6: you have i think with this kind of thing colin you have to kind of let the kids uh, I, I mean there's two parts two parts to this you have to, you, you have to set certain guidelines or certain not so much rules but you have to set boundaries for for what kids do or or, or how they act we we've seen some i mean amanda mentioned homeschoolers we're more a kind of experiential schoolers we've seen something called unschoolers, where kids become quite unruly so i think i think there is a I think there is a kind of a middle ground where you set a framework, you set boundaries. But at the same time, you've got to let kids be who they are within those boundaries. So, um, you know, you talked about some of the kind of the more contemporary pop culture things there. I mean, honestly, I don't know those either. So, But if they want to experience those and they want to hear them, um, when you know when're when we 're when we're out or when we 're traveling and they 're interested in them then that 's what they 're interested in if they 're interested more in classical music that 's great too i mean i don 't think there 's any rules here i mean I, I, I think you can be and Amanda will talk about this as well. You can be incredibly focused on one area uh, and become quite an expert on that, which Rocco tends to do with different areas uh, uh, the, kind of almost the detriment of some of the other areas that he 's working on at that time, but he 'll come back to those if if he determines that you know, um, sport is the thing he's into right now. He'll go into it completely and utterly and learn everything there is to know about it, much more than I'll ever know about a game of baseball or soccer or whatever it is. And I think I think you have to give kids, and this is probably all kids, not just gifted kids, but particularly, I think, with, with our experience, we have to give them the freedom to explore, the freedom to determine what their own likings are and what their own dislikes are, um, what their own feelings around different issues are. And I think you have to... Um, be open to um, exploring whatever they want to look at and think about and and, and bring them up to date with whatever they want to be involved in and whatever they want to know about. And sometimes, you know, Rocco's only nine, but he's very interested in the news. He's very interested in what's going on. He understands the concepts that, you know, that some adults struggle with, I think, in, in, in kind of news. So, you know, I think it's a balance.
2: Um, So, Ellen Winter, you're listening to all this. You know the family. Um, It sounds fabulous. It sounds like there's an age of Pericles uh, unfolding in the Mancino Roth household. Um, And and so what kinds of advice? How do you help them or how does any clinician help them frame this thing that they're talking about doing with with their kids?
3: Well, first of all, I think what they're doing is wonderful. Um, I don't think it's something that most parents can do but they're very fortunate that they're able to homeschool three children and take them with them on trips and as they travel a lot. So, um, Because one of the, the reasons that I think it's so good for these kids is that what I mentioned earlier is that when children like this go to school, they, they are so different from the other children that they have a lot of trouble finding a friend, even one friend. And so they feel like misfits, and they're also bored to tears. And there aren't really very many programs for gifted children to go to. There are very few schools, and uh, especially at the very young ages. So I think the only piece of advice I would give, and I don't really know whether they need this advice, because I think they probably get it, but one of the problems for gifted children growing up is that there becomes they, there's a subtle expectation that they're going to go on to become great geniuses as adults in their field and make major breakthroughs. And very few prodigies end up being what I would call adult creators. Um, they become experts, they become professors, they become lawyers, they become doctors. They become very good, excellent at their chosen field, but they don't necessarily revolutionize their field. There's only a very few people that can do that. Um, so Einsteins an example. Um, but most math prodigies are not going to grow up to be Einsteins. So I think it's important not to give prodigies the ex, uh, the, the, the signal, the message that they're going to go on to become Great geniuses because most aren't, and it would be a huge narcissistic blow when they don't.
2: So, we can sort of use the the Winnicott model of the good enough prodigy.
3: Exactly. All
2: right. So, uh, well, listen, I look forward to uh, spending my senescence uh, in some kind of facility that's enriching to me, that's designed by Rocco Mancino Roth, uh, which I'll be uh, stimulated at least in so far as is possible. Uh, And it's been great to talk to Amanda Mancino and Nigel Roth. Uh, Ellen Winner still with us. We're going to take a break. We've got one more guest for you to meet. We'll do that when we come back. Without wrong, without wrong genius, baby. That the father of bizarro genius baby she's out the womb like dude why i get expatriate debated at one month the final points of a diaper devised a device composed of a hose and a windshield wiper grew ripe, and intellect as the months passed What my guns cap ironically grew fussy once and she summoned me not sonically but through a series of editorials that she authored entitled this mc from the lot, one of the worst fathers oxford state
1: I'm just finishing up the entrance exam for the Gifted and Talented program. Why was Pluto declassified as a planet? Because science. Why did the dinosaurs become extinct? Because science. You know, I don't mean to criticize, but a lot of the questions on this test have the same answer. Today's show was produced by Josh Malea, Betsy Kaplan, and me. Our other intern today is Katie Pikas. Tucker Ives appeared in our intro, and Katie Tilarsky is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Shirley Temple. For show pages, articles, and copies of the Faith Middleton Show staff's kindergarten report cards, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, not another South Korean science fiction global warming action film based on a French graphic novel. The Nose gets together to watch Snowpiercer. And now, back to Colin.
2: That's right. In fact, uh, a number of the Nose panelists are coming to my house tonight uh, because Snowpiercer is being distributed two ways. It's uh, up in movie theaters, but it's also available on demand. Uh, So we'll tell you about that and a bunch of other topics tomorrow on the Nose. Uh, Before we go to Alyssa Court, let me just grab one quick call here. We had a bunch of calls on the board. Uh, A few of them dropped off uh, during the break. Here's David in Hartford. Hi, David. Hello.
0: I'm calling about a cellist named Janos Starker who is... Uh, to the popular public, completely unknown, but he's a musician's musician. He uh, lives to be 89, and he first gave his public first public concerts when he was 6 and 7 years old. He was assigned students to teach by his own teacher when he was 8 years old. And so he taught at Indiana University School of Music for over 60 years, he taught for a total of 81 years before he died, and he was the most recorded cellist in history, having recorded the Bach solo cello suites five different times, and he was the first person to play the famous Kodai solo suite, which was, until he performed it, thought to be unplayable.
2: So exactly. is there is there is there an aspect to this that sort of fits into the conversation we're having?
0: Well, yes. He, he, he grew up... In Hungary and at the time uh, his his parents had emigrated from Poland and the Ukraine but although they were totally uneducated people they loved music so he had a very nurturing environment he grew up at the Franz Liszt Academy in Budapest so the teachers were very well versed in uh, taking raw talent and working with it so they were able to constructively assist him in developing his prodigious gift.
2: All right, David, I got you on this. Uh, we went, we're going to add uh, one more uh, voice to the conversation we've been we're having here about prodigies, and uh, that is going to be Alyssa Court, a uh, journalist, culture critic, and a nonfiction writer based in New York City. Among her many books is Hot House Kids: The Dilemma of the Gifted Child, and Branded. She also authored an article for the Atlantic uh, titled "Extreme Parenting." I should mention that Ellen Winner is still with us. Uh, among her four books are Gifted Children: Myths and Realities. So, um, Alyssa Quart, uh, when you say extreme parenting, I mean, we live in an age, uh, in this sort of baby Einstein age, where you uh, get the headphones uh, on the bump in your belly and make sure that the um, the growing fetus is, is hearing t- t- Toccata and fugue in D minor and and, and everything else that it, it needs to know. Um, does this begin to blur the whole question of who's a gifted child and whose parents think they Pretty much have to have a gifted child.
7: Yeah, exactly. I mean, in my book, Hot House Kids, I called it the baby genius edutainment complex because it's it's you know uh, as as one wag put it, it's uh, the it's also the dilemma of the gifted parent. You know, <laughs> this is this uh, is parents who imagine that they're gifted and want to produce that quality in their kids, um, who are may or may not uh, have be interested in taking these classes et cetera um, until nineteen ninety-seven there was no such thing as baby einstein so this is a relatively new uh, thing. this this level of these these discs and this um... and now i guess uh, streaming videos starting you know and uh, apps when you're six months old that are encouraging kids to learn the alphabet um, and you know, when I said 97, there's no such thing as Baby Einstein. Six years later, one American child in three had watched a Baby Einstein video. So that was, you know, in the early noughts, it just exploded. So what I saw and what I wrote about in my book was just this kind of industry around uh, producing uh, kids who could recognize their letters really early and read really early. But the paradox, of course, is these videos, have been found to have not done that at all they've just been if anything they're just let moms take a shower
6: <laughs> you know
7: and entertain their kid which is guy you know I use uh, apps for that uh, with my 3 year old but they they did not uh enhance their the kids brain activity
2: so, um, Ellen Winner, um, you know, as you're listening to Alyssa Court uh, talk, um, obviously, in an environment like that, there's sort of two possibilities. One of them is that the extremely gifted child who might have gone undetected uh, in the past, you know, in a less enriched environment, uh, if the child was, was living in rural India or something that uh, maybe some of these gifts, maybe some of these prodigious gifts would go overlooked. That's one possibility that suddenly we're going to maybe notice uh, and, and, and nurture uh, these kinds of gifts. I mean the other possibility the one that Alyssa I think is suggesting is, is kind of an exaggerated version of the Lake Wobegon phenomenon where so many children are above average yeah. that the word average st- stops meaning anything. So uh, on the winter, uh, how do you parse that? I mean what do you think the impact of all this watchfulness uh, and, and and cultivation of gifts uh, is on, on generations of children?
3: Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because the baby Einstein things had to be withdrawn because the claims that were exactly. made about how they are improving IQ and going to get your child into Harvard were, were shown to be faulty um, based on no evidence at all. So I think it's... Um, Some children really are prodigies, however. I think Mm -hmm. we have to make a distinction between the kids who have extreme gifts at an early age and the kids who are typical, maybe bright kids who have bright parents, usually high SES parents or middle to high SES parents, who are intent on getting their child into the best preschool and then the best uh, elementary school, et cetera, et cetera, who start thinking that if they stimulate their child enough that they're going to achieve this. And I think that that is a myth. I think that children need a rich an enriched environment with books and art supplies, and, and it's great to expose your ch- children to music, but not because you think it's going to raise their IQ, but just because that's what every child should have.
2: You know, at a certain point, uh, I, can't, I can't even remember the year of it anymore, but we had Daniel Goldman's book, Emotional Intelligence. Uh, and so, and Alyssa Court. I mean, one of the questions one has is— what are the risks of over-focusing on the intellectual uh, development uh, of any child, of the development of gifts and talents, possibly to the exclusion uh, of emotional life? I mean, we talked in the previous segment about how a lot of these kids um, have trouble finding friends. Uh, maybe they go to school and they don't have any friends, or they have one friend, or something like that. Um, but we, we want kids to be able to relate to one another. We want gifted children maybe even to be able to relate to kids who aren't so gifted. Um, is there sort of a risk that that the developments uh, of intellect and emotions kind of get out of synchronicity with one another.
7: Well, yeah. So uh, I, I don't know if you mentioned this earlier, Ellen, or anybody else. Uh, they, they call it asynchronous development. Uh, it's where a kid gets has an exaggerated uh, uh, quality of uh, ability, facility in one area, and has a lack in another. So that that definitely can happen. Where there's a, and there are many uh, X. Ex- prodigies that I spoke to for my book, uh, who indeed had that. They were really great at math, and sometimes, sadly, they were really great at test-taking, and they weren't actually even that great at <laughs> any particular thing, so that when they became uh, even high school age and they had to write papers, they, they couldn't cope. So, I mean, that was interesting, too. That So, it depends sometimes even what kids are overdeveloped in. Are they overdeveloped in something they love, and that gives them a sense of mastery and strength, or are they overdeveloped at something like test-taking uh, abilities, which would be, you know, mazes or, you know, then then on forward to the SATs, et cetera, but then they really don't have a mastery of a skill or even many skills, and they're just kind of uh, unable to function in, in work environments. I mean, this was one kid I interviewed who had grown up into be this kind of person who was unable to hold jobs even, although he had had these extraordinary test scores, right? Uh, and IQ score also. So I think that that's a danger. Another danger uh, is just this more generalized feeling that you'll never be as good as you were when you were young. And I, I put in my book a nostalgia for the idea of the future that you had in the past. So it's sort of this fantasy that a lot of uh the ex-prodigies I spoke to, what, that they had had when they were young, that they just would continue this ascent, that they'd be uh, first chair, uh, if they were musicians, that they would um, be creating uh, amazing works of literature, if they were, you know, writing uh, poems or novels, as, as I did when I was a kid, um, or, you know, uh, that they were, uh, they'd were they be great mathematicians. And sometimes they were, and sometimes they weren't. And so there is there's that sort of more subtle and almost like uh, – literary uh, quality where they feel like they're not they, they they'll never be what they could have been but it's sort of rigged against them because few prodigies become geniuses right so there's a that that's another risk so if we're even just talking i mean Ellen's absolutely right there's a huge distinction between kids who are using baby Einstein toys or being having them foist on them uh, and, and CDs and kids who are have these incredible gifts But even those with incredible gifts are at risk, and that was what I was trying to write about in my book.
2: So, you know, we're running out of time here, but Ellen Winter, you know, it seems that with the, with the real prodigies, um, the asynchronous development is pro- is probably going to happen, right? They're going to be hyper-functioning in this one area. They're going to find the cello or the chess set or the Fibonacci sequence or, or whatever it is. You know, you couldn't keep them away from the, it if you wanted to. They're going to find that. They're going to be good at that, but they may lag behind in other areas. Absolutely. Is, is that a case for then really, really working hard? on In other words, if, if forging friendships with more than one or two like-minded people is sort of a deficit and a deficit that's likely to happen to those children. Is that the area where you really want to, to aim your big guns?
3: Well, you're raising a kind of a value question. If a child has a very uneven profile, do you focus on the strengths or focus on the weaknesses? And I think that it depends on the child and it depends on whether the child is unhappy. Really, I think all a very gifted child just needs one one person like himself one other kid if you can find one other kid who's similar to your child in extreme gifts then that your child will not feel so isolated i don't think you have to force your child to be friends with people that your child doesn't want to be friends with my my preference is to follow the, is to basically allow the child a lot of freedom to pursue the the talent that your that the child has but to go to try really hard to find other at least one other child like your child
2: that sounds great. We're out of time here. Uh, Ellen Winner is a professor and chair of psychology at Boston College. Uh, her books include Gifted Children, Myths, and Realities. And we're finishing up here with Allison, Al- Alyssa Court. Excuse me. Uh, her books include Hot House Kids, The Dilemma of the Gifted Child, a- and Branded. We want to have to, uh, make special thanks to Josh Nalea. He's the guy who conceived this show uh, and pulled it all together. It's been fascinating stuff. We're coming back tomorrow with The Nose. Jim Chapdelaine will be with us, uh, and uh, Irene Papoulis will be with us. And we'll be introducing a brand. And new exciting nose personality, whom you will meet tomorrow, provided you do the right thing uh, and listen. Thanks again uh, for listening today. As far as I'm concerned, you're all gifted, you're all talented, you're all prodigiously interested in good public radio.
1: Is he a genius? Well, I don't know. Maybe, but my baby's smart enough to know who is that I love him so. My baby's a genius, yep, yep. my baby's so on smile. Yep, yep. my baby's a genius, cause he knows I love him with all my heart. What ended in 1896? 1895. Where was the Declaration of Independence signed? At the bottom. Magnets. How do they work? Miracles.